Yes, it's, it's, uh, people have mentioned this. It's very odd talking to a completely dark room, but I will, um, I will seek to triumph over that. Um, it's, it's amazingly wonderful to be here um, and particularly wonderful to be asked to say even a word. Um, now, as usual, not for the first time, my inspiration comes from a poet. Uh, this is clearly a poet who would have been very comfortable in Tiffany Atkinson's poem, hanging around outside the hospital. Um, but this is the great Polish poet Zbigniew Herbert, and this time my inspiration comes from his poem on Mr. Cogito's two legs. Now, Mr. Cogito is Herbert's alter ego, or s at least seems to be. The left leg normal, one could say optimistic, a little too short, boyish, with exuberant muscles and a well-shaped calf. The right leg, God help us, thin, with two scars, one along the Achilles tendon, the other oval, pale pink, shameful reminder of an escape. The left inclined to leap, ready to dance, loving life too much to put itself at any risk. The right nobly rigid, sneering at danger. In this way, on two legs, the left comparable to Sancho Panza, and the right recalling the wandering night, Mr. Cogito goes through the world, staggering slightly. And so in a way, I want to explore what makes Mr. Cogito stagger through the world, which is the frontier or the disjunction between those two legs, because it seems to me that it's the same frontier that causes contemporary medicine to stagger. The left leg for me represents the optimistic positivism of medical science with its intolerance of risk, its implicit belief in the perfectibility of the human body, and its simplistic aspiration to postpone death indefinitely. Whereas the scarred right leg represents the reality of the human experience of suffering, loss, and death. Too often there is an almost impassable frontier between the two. And we are living this disjunction right here and right now. Another aspect of this same frontier exists between illness and disease. And for those of you who are not doctors, illness is what you have on the way to see the doctor and disease is what you have on the way home. <laughs> illness is what you feel, disease is what the doctor calls it. And this is the frontier that is negotiated or reinforced or perhaps interpreted, as we heard earlier today, within almost every consultation. The frontier between illness and disease, that first red line in the middle, is the point at which the vast undifferentiated mass of human distress and suffering meets the classifications of scientific medicine which have been developed to enable humanity to a still very limited extent to understand and control the experience of illness. It is where the vast territory of human suffering meets the still very schematic map of medical science. Illness is the perception of something being wrong, a sense of unease in the functioning of the body or mind. Disease is a theoretical construct which offers the benefits and risks of scientific medicine. But by no means all illness is caused by disease. 
A headache can be caused by worry or anger. Diarrhea can be caused by fear. And there are countless other examples. Scientific medicine is a power for good, but it is also a significant cause of harm. So doctors, and perhaps especially general practitioners, who I think have had a very low profile this weekend, actually, but have learnt from experience the benefits to both the individual and to society of holding the frontier between subjective illness and the disease categories recognised by bio biomedical science, of confining people within those categories only when the label will be positively useful to them, of deliberately minimising exposure to the harms of medical technology. And in this way, doctors try to direct the power and the rising costs of biomedical science where it can help rather than where it harms. And the same frontier exists between biography, the story of a very particular, unique life, and biology, which underpins the generalizations of biomedical science. And the fortifications along that particular frontier mean that the medical view of the human body does not see the body as communicating and expressing a lived life. Biology has had a regrettable tendency to regard the body as a machine, and we've been there already this weekend. So medicine has viewed the body as something a person has rather than something a person is. The American physicist philosopher David Bohm has this comment. It does seem odd that just when physics is moving away from mechanism, biology and psychology are moving closer to it. If the trend continues, scientists will be regarding living and intelligent beings as mechanical, while they suppose that inanimate matter is too complex and subtle to fit into the limited categories of mechanism. Now, the problem is, it's a very good point, the problem is, he wrote that in 1969, it was a paper written a generation ago, and we seem only just to be starting to take notice. And I hope after the discussions this weekend, we can all now agree that we can no longer usefully regard the body as a machine, and biology, and indeed medicine, as engineering, despite our profession's almost limitless enthusiasm for algorithms. Sadly, when human beings are sick, there are very few easy yes-no answers, despite the hopes, aspirations, and imperatives of politicians and policymakers, and behind those, the aspirations and imperatives of the medical industrial complex. Would not only like to sell us Gaffertake and WD-40, but a lot else besides. Yet this frontier between Mr. Cogito's two legs, between illness and disease, between biography and biology, can begin to be negotiated if we try to understand the biology of biography. And here I mean something much, much more fundamental than listening to stories. The scars on Mr. Cogito's right leg remind me of Elizabeth Cook's retelling of the story of the Greek warrior Achilles, and I'm very pleased that Troy has also been a recurring theme this weekend. Elizabeth Cook writes, each wound a story. He learned how to spin a story from link to link, from scar to scar. These, the stories of his father's body, were his first. 
She's describing the child Achilles learning stories from the scars on Peleus's body. And our patient scars have the potential to reveal their stories in a similar way, but only if we as doctors are prepared to look for them, and only if, like the child Achilles, we ask and listen. Our bodies, not remade from scratch every seven years, but constantly eroding and renewing until the renewal stops. What persists most is what is least alive. Scar tissue, for example, intractable, durable stuff. Once the body has rallied to repair itself, the site of repair becomes fixed, unable to renew itself anymore. The more durable, the less living. The Achilles story is about the scars of battle. And many of our illest patients have scars which may not be so readily visible, but which also record stories of violence and trauma. The scars that Achilles saw on Peleus's body were anatomical, affecting the tissues of the body. But physiology, the functioning of the body, can also be, also be scarred. It's only in recent years that science has begun to document the extent to which physiology can be scarred, so that it becomes more and more clear that violence, trauma, and chronic stress should be viewed as fundamental causes of disease and premature aging. Biology itself is gradually extending our understanding of how experiential wounds damage bodies. Allostasis is the process by which physiological functions respond to challenge and it's mediated by multiple neurological, hormonal, and immune mechanisms which are far beyond the grasp of an ordinary GP. But the body's capacity for allostasis is limited and can be overloaded by continuous and excessive stress. Allostatic overload is the physiological equivalent of Peleus's battle scars. The adaptive functioning of the body loses its flexibility and becomes fixed. Adverse child experiences, as I'm sure Camilla will tell us much more. Adverse experiences in early childhood include physical, emotional, and sexual abuse, witnessing domestic violence, growing up with a household substance abuse, mental illness, parental divorce, or an incarcerated household member. Such experiences have been shown to predict future premature mortality to the extent that people with six or more adverse child experiences died on average nearly 20 years earlier than those without any. In the context of a damaging childhood, the developing brain is cumulatively exposed to repeated stress responses, which result in impairment of multiple brain structures and functions. Adverse child experiences markedly increase the risk of smoking, alcohol and substance misuse, obesity, depression, self-harming and suicide, and multiple sexual partners. As my friend and colleague, Norwegian GP, Anna-Louisa Kirchingham puts it, children who, have more than who more than anything have learned that they are worthless and not appreciated, turn into young people who know neither their right to be protected nor how to protect themselves. So this is the uh, Adverse Child Experiences Study Pyramid summarizing the current state of understanding. So adverse child experiences cause disrupted neurodevelopment, leading to social, emotional, and cognitive impairment, which in turn lead to the early adoption of risky health behaviors, and these play out in disease, disability, social problems, and they culminate in early death. 
And we have a ridiculous government, and I know we're supposed to be nice to everybody, including politicians. It's a bridge too far from me. <laughs> they think that intervening at this level is going to solve health inequalities. That is pie in the sky. Trauma is the breakdown of the predictability and therefore the security of the world. And in the context of what I'm trying to say, it's interesting that the word trauma comes from the Greek for wound, with all its connotations of bodily harm. Natural disasters, earthquakes, floods, avalanches cause immediate injury. And beyond that, they defy our quotidian expectations, disrupt our sense of safety in the world, and so cause lingering trauma. But much more commonly, human beings do terrible things to one another at both individual and societal levels, and in so doing have the potential to wound, scar, and traumatize human bodies and undermine health at every level of functioning. Such interpersonal wounding disrupts our sense of safety much more fundamentally and is proportionately more damaging as this, the philosopher Simone Weil, here drawn by John Berger, so clearly understood. This painting is of the mayhem of battle, uh, is from the 5th century Ambrosiana Iliad. Upper left is John Flaxman's 1795 drawing of Hector and Andromache as Hector prepares to fight Achilles and to die. And bottom left is Simone Weil's extraordinary essay on the Iliad. For those dreamers who considered that force, thanks to progress, would soon be a thing of the past, the Iliad could appear as an historical doc document. For others whose powers of recognition are more acute and who perceive force today as yesterday at the very center of human history, the Iliad is the purest and the loveliest of mirrors. She continues, to define force, it is that X that turns anybody who is subjected to it into a thing. Exercised to the limit, it turns man into a thing in the most literal sense. It makes a corpse out of him. Human beings damage each other through the exercise of force, turning the target of that force into a thing and triggering early disease and often early death. Medicine that separates bodies from minds and both from the story of a life also risks turning patients into things and that process always inflicts harm. Simone Weil concludes, nothing the peoples of Europe have produced is worth the first known poem that appeared among them. Perhaps they will yet rediscover the epic genius when they learn that there is no refuge from fate Learn not to admire force, not to hate the enemy, not to scorn the unfortunate. How soon this will happen is another question. But if and when it does, we will have finally bridged that frontier between Mr. Cogito's legs and between science and story. Thank you. Thank you.